John Huss was an early star of the Protestant Reformation. He was a preacher and a religious reformer at the turn of the 15th century in southern Bohemia, in the area now found around the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. Huss was instrumental in spreading and defending the teachings of John Wycliffe, specifically that the Bible, and not the Pope, was the supreme source of spiritual authority. His outspoken critiques of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church made him followers as well as enemies. After being tricked into what was supposed to be a guaranteed safe and friendly debate of religious differences with the church, he was captured, imprisoned, and prepared for trial. The council urged Huss to recant his beliefs in order to save his life, but he refused to renounce the gospel of Christ. He also refused to admit guilt to the false statements that the council had claimed that he had advocated. John Huss declined to recant by declaring, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. In the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, and drawing upon the sayings and positions of the Holy Scriptures, I am ready to die today. When he refused to recant, he was solemnly sentenced to death as a heretic by the Council of Constance on July 6, 1415, and burned at the stake. At the place of execution, he knelt down, spread out his hands, and prayed aloud. The executioner undressed Huss and tied his hands behind his back with ropes and bound his neck with a chain to a stake around which wood and straw had been piled up so far that it covered him to the neck. It has been claimed that the executioners actually had trouble getting the fire to burn. An old woman then came to the stake and threw a relatively small amount of brushwood on it, causing it to blaze more fully. It is said that when he was finally about to die, he cried out, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Huss's ashes were later thrown into the Rhine River. And not recanting his faith, Huss chose the earthly flames of martyrdom over the eternal flames of God's wrath. His death sparked off an armed revolt by his followers in Bohemia, where it actually had become something of a national hero. In 1420, a series of crusades were launched against what Catholic Europe saw as the heretical Hussites. Amazingly, the Hussites won, allowing them to establish an independent Hussite church in the very heart of Catholic Europe. Shortly before he died, Huss is said to have muttered the statement, you may roast this goose, Huss actually means goose in Czech, so you may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will rise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Interestingly, almost a hundred years later, Martin Luther would proclaim the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and the Protestant Reformation would be well underway. Surely, John Huss's life, death, and dying words had a profound impact on the world that followed him. Our text this morning tells another true story of a man's deeds and dying words. Only these deeds and words did not offer mere predictions for the future or seek mercy from above. These deeds and words secured a freedom that is eternal and complete, a freedom from the wages of sin and death, freedom from being eternally separated from the grace, but not the wrath of God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. 
And in the Bibles and the pews around you, these verses can be found on page 906. Let's read together the words of this passage. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. This morning, we are going to examine more closely the final words and physical acts of Jesus on the cross as recorded by the Apostle John in verse 30. Now at the outset, let me note that Jesus' words, it is finished, in verse 30, are often referred to in church history as one of the seven final phrases of Jesus during his hours of suffering on the cross. Our verse this morning is the last one in this series. Now, Scripture does not indicate exactly which phrases were the actual last words uttered by the Savior on the cross, but each of these seven phrases was very near the end. And based on circumstances, it seems that the words, it is finished, here in John 19.30, along with the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, from Matthew 27, verse 46, would seem to be the closest to his bowing his head and giving up his spirit. Indeed, in our passage this morning, John tells us that Jesus did exactly that after proclaiming, it is finished. So when I refer to these as Jesus' last words, I mean them in this context. So what did he declare in those words? Why did he need to bow his head and give up the spirit? Why are these acts significant? And what do these declarations of Christ mean for us and how we should live our lives today? These are some of the questions that we will try to answer this morning. Our outline for this examination will be as follows. First, we will look at what he said, Jesus' final verbal declaration on the cross. Second, we'll look at what he did, Jesus' final physical declaration on the cross. And finally, we'll look at what we should do in response. And I'll repeat each point as I get to them to assist you in following along and for those of you taking notes. And there's also an outline in your bulletin to help you along as well, which even gives more detail than I just did to my outline. So to our first point, what he said. Jesus' final verbal declaration on the cross. We read from verse 30 that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, the three words, it is finished, are actually said with one word, tetaleste, which means, it is finished. This Greek word was well, a well-known term at the time. In fact, papyri receipts for taxes have been found from the time period with the word tetaleste written across them, meaning that the taxes were paid in full. This is the same word Jesus uses here on the cross, and its meaning is crystal clear in both the Greek and the English. Now when we reach these words in verse 30, we have reached the climax of the crucifixion story. His disciple Judas has betrayed Jesus. Jesus has been arrested and taken prisoner by the Roman soldiers. He has appeared before Annas, Caiaphas, and before Pilate. He has been mocked, flogged, and publicly shamed. He has carried his cross to Golgotha. Jesus has been nailed to that cross. The soldiers have cast lots for his clothes, and Jesus has been abandoned by his fellow Jews and even by some of his disciples. And now, he stands at the physical precipice of physical death. 
But it is also important here to see that this is not merely the climax of the crucifixion, but also the fulfillment of God's holy plan from the beginning. Christ gave himself up as the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, we know from Ephesians 5. It was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as Jesus died on behalf of believers as God's long-awaited Passover lamb. It was a holy calling, not based on man's works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God sent his son to die as his will was to crush him. But as Genesis 50.20 tells us, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Jesus' death reversed the effects of the fall and rescued his people. So the it being finished here is much more than is merely declaring that he had finished drinking the sour wine from the hyssop branch given him by the Roman soldier. He was not asking for more to drink to question his thirst. No, he was making a much more profound statement than ordering a drink. He was making a declaration that would alter the course of history, a pivotal event if there ever was one. His public declaration and voluntary human death resulted, according to Matthew 27, in the temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shaking, rocks splitting, tombs opening, and even bodies coming up out of those tombs in resurrection. Know this it that was completed was dramatic, significant, and of the Lord. So what is this it? Let's dig in here a bit and look at six observations of what was finished on the cross. Number one, the malice of his persecutors was finished. The malice and hate of his persecutors was over. His persecutors had done their worst. There would be no more shame, no more jeers, no more mocking and scoffing, no more disrespect for the Son of God at the hands of his captors. They had run their course. This was over. The band of Roman soldiers, the chief priests and officers, the Roman government, and even the Jewish crowds who chanted, crucify him, crucify him, would not be able to torment him further. The branch of sour wine was the last indignity he would have to face at their hands. He was now going out of their reach where the wicked cease from trembling. It was finished. Number two, his suffering was finished. As the prophet states in Isaiah 53.10, as we read earlier in our service, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. Jesus' sufferings were now finished, both those of his body and his soul. The storm was over. The worst was past. All of his pains and agonies were at an end. No more floggings. No more painful crown of thorns. No more tolerating the hits of hands and the verbal assaults of hatred. No more painful striving to lift his physical body on that tree to fill his lungs with each breath of air. His fully human body would no longer feel the real pain and suffering of his physical torment and punishment. Furthermore, and even more painful, the agony of his soul in carrying the burden and punishment of all the sin of those that repent and believe would be over. God's wrath was spent on Jesus. No part of it was withheld. The just punishment of sin was poured out on him in full satisfaction of the debt owed the Holy God. That pain and misery which caused him to cry out loud on the cross would soon end. 
No words can ever tell his agony than the prospect of his passion. As the theologian Charles Spurgeon observed, when nailed to the cross, he endured what no martyr ever suffered. For martyrs, when they have died, have been so sustained by God that they have rejoiced amid their pain. But our Redeemer was forsaken by his Father, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the bitterest cry of all, the utmost depth of an unfathomable grief. Yet it was necessary for Christ to be deserted because God must turn his back on sin and consequently on him who was made sin for us. The horror of bearing the full wrath of his father would be done. The suffering servant, the spotless lamb of God, was now going to paradise to enter the joy that was set before him. He was going to heaven to receive the petition he had made of his father in John 17, 5, to be glorified in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It was finished. Number three, Jesus' human life was finished. Jesus' human life was now coming to an end. He was just ready to breathe his last, and we know from verse 30 that this is exactly what he did upon declaring it is finished. As Jesus declared to the high priest in John 17, 11, he was going to be no longer in this world. He was going to be in paradise. The son returned safely home to the presence of his father. The work and use of his human body up to that point was complete. He would return in that human body after the resurrection and will again on the last day in glory. And Jesus, even now, possesses a glorified human body in heaven. That's why he can be our mediator in heaven. As one friend likes to say, the dust of the earth sits on the throne of heaven. But here, at the cross, for three days, the human life in that body would cease to live. That body would die. That human heart would stop. And those human lungs would not breathe again for three days. He did not go into a cyber sleep or into some form of a coma. No, his human life was extinguished completely, just like yours and mine will be one day soon. Indeed, the bleeding of Jesus would not have been enough. Jesus' bleeding to death is what saves us and what was required to pay the penalty of sin. Remember that this living and dying of Christ for us and this alone is the basis of our acceptance with God. This is also what was necessary for his resurrection. He was raised by his death. The resurrection was the act of God that vindicated Jesus' death and all that Jesus had claimed. It was the public endorsement that God was satisfied. And as Romans 6 proclaims, a sufficient price was paid and death was the price of the resurrection. As 1 Corinthians 15.7 says, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. His human body was born. His human body bled. His human body died. And his human body was buried. It was finished. Number four. The Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. The law was finished and all obligations to it were over. All the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to the sufferings of the Messiah were now accomplished and answered. Each and every one was completed. 
What the divinely inspired authors of the prophecy had declared would happen between him and his death had all been accomplished. Everything from his being despised and rejected of men to his being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver to his hands and feet being pierced and his garments being divided were fulfilled. It was finished. Likewise, the ceremonial law was also now abolished and the chains of abiding by it were removed. The curtain was torn. The veil was rent and the shadows were done away. Jesus and his perfect work on the cross had abolished the law. As Paul declared in Ephesians 2, 14-16, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For you see, Jesus' work on the cross not only abolished the law, but also fulfilled it. Up to this point, all who relied on the works of the law were under a curse. For it was written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All the requirements had been met. The sacrifice was complete. It was accepted and the penalty of sin under the law was paid in full once and for all. All requirements for works were made moot, displaced forever by a justification by faith in what Jesus had now accomplished on the cross. The Mosaic law was now fulfilled and set aside to make way for a better hope, a new hope, in the death and resurrection of Christ alone. Now in the Greco-Roman world, a record of debt was a written note of indebtedness. During a crucifixion, Roman authorities would fasten this death notice to the cross, declaring the crime for which the criminal was being executed. Indeed, if we look back at John 19 with me a few verses before our text, we look at verses 19 through 22, it reads, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. That was the written note of accusation for the debt that needed to be paid for. But Paul in Colossians 2, 13-14, tells us that Jesus had a clearer understanding of the debt that his death would pay when he wrote, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul used this word picture to characterize each person's indebtedness to God because of their sin. Here we see that God himself mercifully resolved this problem for all who put their faith in Jesus by taking this note and nailing it to the cross where Jesus paid the debt. It was finished. Five, the work needed to fulfill his father's command was finished. 
The commandment of his Father, given before the world, was even created, concerning his suffering to atone for sin, was now fulfilled. His orders from his Father were specific and clear, and he fulfilled them down to the very last detail. He did not cut corners, and indeed protested when others suggested he should do so. Did he not rebuke Peter in the garden in John 18.11, when Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And in John 4.34, we see that Jesus' whole purpose was to be about his Father's business when he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus had a specific assignment to redeem sinners and purposefully set about getting it done in the exact specifications given to him. In fact, the same Peter who was rebuked in the garden learned this truth and understood it well when during his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter declared that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing that happened was outside the plan of his father or beyond the predetermined command of God. This was not a tragic accident or cosmic child abuse, as some have asserted. No, this was the plan from the beginning, and Jesus knew it, accepted it, and fulfilled it. As Jesus himself said in John 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. His Father's command had a purpose to save sinners, and that purpose was now fulfilled. It was finished. Number six. Sin was finished, and an end was made of our transgressions. The final and complete antidote to sin had come and overcome its consequences. Daniel prophesied that the suffering servant would come to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. This servant was the God-man Jesus, who sacrificed his human life to finish the transgression, to defeat Satan, to put this end to sin, and to atone for iniquity for those that repent and believe in faith. For the heirs of Christ, the promise of redemption was not merely a promise. It was delivered and accomplished in part by the destruction of sin. As the writer to the Hebrews states in Hebrews 9, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin was finished. The work of man's redemption and salvation was now almost complete and would be fully finished upon his resurrection in three days. Full satisfaction had been made to the justice of the holy God. A fatal blow had been made to the power of Satan. The fountain of grace had been opened that will forever flow. The foundation of peace and happiness had been laid that will never fail. Matthew 20, 28 tells us, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The two-way redemption process had been initiated, executed, and consummated with perfect success according to God's sovereign plan. The sins of those that repent and believe 
have been taken away from the repentant sinner and placed on the Holy Lamb of Jesus so that he who was without sin became sin. The holiness of Christ had then been imputed from Christ to the repentant believer, clothing them once and for all in the righteousness of their Savior. Christ had now gone through with his work and finished it. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. The plan and purpose in sending his son to earth to die on behalf of sinful men had now been accomplished. Indeed, what was finished was the fulfillment of the whole will of God, that God the Father should send his one and only son Jesus to become incarnate, being fully God and fully man, to live the perfect life with no sin, be exposed to public sin and reproach, to suffer much and to die. He was born to die, to do the whole work of his Father, to preach the gospel, work miracles, and to obtain eternal salvation. And we know this from Jesus himself all the way back in Mark chapter 1, that he had come out so that he could preach the saving gospel. And from John 9, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. All of these things were now done. The whole righteousness of the law was fulfilled as the Passover lamb secured a holy nature for his heirs and during the penalty of death. And by the shed blood of the eternal covenant, the great shepherd was raised and reigns forever. Tetelestai. It was finished. Now to our second point. What he did. Jesus' final physical declaration on the cross. After verbally declaring it, indeed all of it, finished, John tells us that Jesus breathed his last Look again at verse 30 with me. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Even in his own death, Jesus is seen to be in charge. John records that he gave up his life. No one took it from him. To get even a small and better glimpse of the physical wonder of what Jesus did in bowing his head and giving up his spirit, it is helpful to make an attempt, however incomplete, to picture in our minds a sense of the physical suffering that Jesus was undergoing while hanging there on the cross. There are no words that can do justice to his suffering, but listen to the words of C. Truman Davis, a medical physician, who after years of studying the human body, has attempted to express what happens to the body in a Roman crucifixion. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow them some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain 
shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knitting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale, to exhale, and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues, and tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Yes, words are incomplete, and yet even these incomplete words are chilling and shocking, hard to hear and hard to read. Hebrews 12:2 says, "For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Indeed, he endured much." Even more, a text from John this morning says that it was at this point in this awful physical suffering that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John tells us here that Jesus bowed his head, a voluntary action, not one that was forced upon him by any suffering or required of him by another human. Any other man would have succumbed to this suffering and always did. But Jesus was unlike every other man. Historically and traditionally, when one was crucified on a Roman cross, in dying, the victims stretched up their heads to gasp for that last breath and did not drop their head until they had breathed their last, letting gravity have its way in an involuntary action that was out of their control. Normally, the head would slump forward only after the life spirit had ebbed away. But Christ, to show himself active in dying, bowed his head first, composing himself, as it were, to almost fall asleep. Remember, Jesus was also at this moment, still sovereignly reigning over the entire world. And in the midst of this immense physical suffering, Jesus, in total control of his real physical body, bowed his heavy head. Indeed, God had laid on him the iniquity of us all, putting it upon the head of this great sacrifice. In the bowing of his head, Jesus may also indicate the sense of the weight of this burden of sin. He may be like the psalmist in Psalm 38.4 who laments, For my iniquities 
have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And again in Psalm 40, 12, the psalmist declares, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Yet unlike the psalmist, Jesus is sufficient to the task. Also unlike to the psalmist, Jesus was without sin. On the cross, he was carrying the sin and the punishment for that sin for all those that repent and believe. And as the suffering servant, he bears up under the weight while enduring the penalty as only the spotless lamb and the Messiah could. He takes the full weight and brunt of the wrath of his father and overcomes death and sin and his resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we read that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. As Calvin says, by his death, he prevented us from dying, or he by his death purchased life for us. It is important to note that Jesus permitted himself to be overcome by death. He was not overcome by it or unable to withstand its weight, its demands. No, he allowed himself to be engulfed by its abyss so as, not to, so as to annihilate it and by doing so ensured that it would not annihilate us. But even in this moment, he was not crushed by the power of death even for a moment. He actually subdued death so that it went hung over us we can exalt in the knowledge that Jesus had already overcome it for us. As Hebrews 4 states, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He bowed his head so that the weary sinner would be able to confidently lift his. Confident in the work of Christ, bowing his head in victory for all repentant, weary sinners. The bowing of his head also shows his submission to his Father's will and his obedience unto death, even death on a cross. He accommodated himself to his dying work out of obedience, much like Jacob did in Genesis 49.33, who, as Scripture says, drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Our text also says that Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus' life was not forcibly taken from him, but freely resigned. It's almost as if he dismisses his, his spirit, as in Jesus releasing it with the words, you can go now. We know this not only from John 19.30, but also from Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where it is recorded that Jesus expressed this exact intention when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave himself as a ransom for many, giving up his spirit, paying down the price of pardon and eternal life at his Father's hands. Jesus himself chose to die. His Father ordained it, and Jesus embraced it. Speaking in John 10, 17-18, Jesus stated, The Father loves me because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus embraced death with his own authority granted him by the Father. 
And this is the paradox of the New Testament. On the one hand, you have the full outpouring of God's wrath on His Son. And on the other hand, you have the perfect submission of the Son to the Father's will. This works in perfect holy harmony according to God's eternal plan and purposes. And it should cause us to worship the terrible wonder and love of God. He voluntarily died, for He was not only the sacrifice, but also the priest and the offerer. It was His Father's will that He, if it was His Father's will that He continue to live, He would have and could have done so. The suffering would still not have overwhelmed or subdued Him. Because all was finished, He could now bow His head and give up the Spirit. Jesus' physical actions prove the truth of His words. His voluntary death shows that it truly was finished. Now to our third and final point. So what should we do in response to all of this? We should repent and believe and live as those who live in the finished world. Now to my unbelieving friend, up to this point you may be thinking, well this is an interesting history lesson, but what does it have to do with me? Well my friend, if you only listen to or remember one thing I have said, I plead with you that it would be this. Friend, you and I have a problem. You see, we are both sinners, and this does not mean that we have made mere mistakes. No, we have sinned against the Holy God, which makes us His enemy. For you see, the perfect Holy God, who created both of us in His image, gave us one job to do, and we failed to do that job. That was to give Him glory by obeying His commands and living in perfect holiness. But both you and I have committed unholy acts called sins. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the perfect holy God, the righteous judge, must punish those sins. Otherwise, he would, could, would not be holy, just, or loving. There are no exceptions. Our sin cuts us off from the love of God. Friend, the Bible clearly teaches that the soul of the one who sins dies. The punishment for sin is death and eternal separation from the grace but not the punishment of God. Now, friend, you may think that you're going to die anyways. It is true. We all will die. But you have to understand that death is decisive for destiny. Dying in your sins means that your sin and death will place you under the permanent and eternal wrath of God. Friend, for those that repent of their sins and believe in Christ, there is another way to die. You can die in this finished work of Christ that we have been reading about and receive His purchased, glorious inheritance of grace with God in eternity. In Jesus, this holy God Himself provided the perfect sacrifice and substitute for sinners, sinners like you and I. His shed blood on the cross purchased freedom from the believer from the consequences of our sin as that punishment was poured out in full on Jesus. The remedy for your sins and mine is the substitutionary sufferings of the Lord Jesus and these alone. The stripes of suffering were on behalf of the believer. As Spurgeon says, these sufferings are the ointment that heals, but we need the bandage of faith to apply that ointment to the wound our sin makes in our relationship with God. Faith is the bandage that binds the ointment of Christ's reconciliation to the sore of our sin. The bandage does not heal, that is the work of the ointment. Likewise, faith does not heal, that is the work of the atonement of Christ. For you see, there are only two ways to die, in our sins or in Christ's finished work. 
And as an unbeliever, you are on course to die in your sins. Friend, I plead with you to repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and trust in Christ for your salvation. That is the difference between you and I. It is nothing I have done and does not make me any better than you, only that I know that I am a sinner and that I have, through God's unmerited favor and His calling on my life, trusted in Christ and rest now in His finished work alone. His shed blood has covered over my sin and clothed me in His righteousness. According to the Bible, death is gain for a believer because after death, the believer will be with Christ in heavenly glory. And as a Christian, I view my own forthcoming death, death as an appointment in Jesus' calendar, which He will faithfully keep because I am His. Friend, I know whom I, in whom I have believed, and I pray that you by God's grace will know as well. If you want to talk more with me about this, please see me at the door or talk with a friend or family member that you came with. I assure you that this is the most important thing that you can do today or any day for that matter for the fate of your soul is at stake. I pray that you will. Now kids and teenagers, I want you to especially listen to me now. You need to know that you do not get to be, uh, just be a Christian just because your parents are Christians or because you obey them. And you're not a Christian because you come to church or even because you take good notes during the sermon or even because you're really good at memorizing Bible verses in Sunday school. While all of these things are really good things to do and you should do them and continue to do them, they do not make you a Christian. Doing that alone would only make you like the Pharisees. Now, kids, do you remember the stories about the Pharisees in the, in the New Testament? They also went to church. They also studied and wrote about the scriptures and even talked about the scriptures. But doing all of those good things did not make them followers of Jesus. To be a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, you need to understand that you are a sinner who needs this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we have been talking about. You must believe on your own, and not just with the help of your parents, that he died for you and for your sins on that cross. Talk with your parents this afternoon or this evening about how you can be a true follower of Jesus and not a pretend follower of Jesus like the Pharisees. To my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I now want to address you as Christians. Because in Christ and in his work is where you and I have our identity. And I want to give you a few challenges as you walk in faith in this finished world. Christian, act like you really live in the world where it is indeed finished. The greatest act of love in all of history, God sending his only son to the cross to die, to die for yours and my sin, is finished. Indeed, Jesus' words, it is finished, were not the mere dying gasps of a dying man. They were the triumphal declaration and exaltation of a victorious Savior, heralding out the good news of salvation to the whole pasture of his sheep, past, present, and future. He is declaring, it is finished, in fulfillment of my Father's command. I, Jesus, have secured a righteous inheritance for you. Come into my arms in my righteous protection, for you are mine. Brother and sister, do you daily act as one who resides in those loving and protecting arms? 
This is not a temporary residence. You are permanently living there. Ephesians 2.19 declares that believers are members of God's household. The God in whose arms and household we reside is also related to us. He is our heavenly Father. John 10, Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christian, this is you. Jesus finished the work. Hear his voice and follow him unflinchingly, for he knows you. The Savior of the world knows you. He's not just heard of you. He does not know about you or someone like you. No, the crucified Savior knows you personally. You were his child, his heir, and you will receive the inheritance that he finished securing for you through his holy human life and through his suffering and work on that ugly and horrible cross. 1 John 4.10 declares the truth that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves you personally and gave his son to personally pay the punishment for your sins. It is finished. So Christian, how does this change your life? It should. First, listen, trust, and actually believe in these words of Jesus. Stop striving, stop resisting, stop worrying, stop wallowing in guilt, believe and rest in Christ's work and words on the cross, for the work is done. Brother, sister, persevere in your faith and obedience, not by your own work, but by remembering that, on, that you only persevere in your faith because Jesus Christ through the Spirit, persists in preserving you. When you pass a test in school, you do not go back and take it again. You already passed it. Jesus already took the test, and he aced it. Only Christ could pass it. You don't need to take, retake it, and God doesn't even give it anymore, and he will never need to do so. It is finished. Second, Christian, place all your hope in Christ for only there is it secure and lasting. Yes, the culture may be deteriorating. Sure, your job and your living situation may disappoint you. And yes, you may be frustrated that God has not yet given you a spouse or a child. Perhaps the government may be letting you down or even seeming to growingly threaten you and perhaps even eventually your children for what you believe. But friend, our hope is not in an election, not in a government, a culture, a school, an education, a spouse, a marriage, a child, a job, or even in a good church. No, it is in Christ as he completed the work on the cross necessary to secure it. It is done and finished. Was this not what John Huss was placing his hope in? When his life was not only being threatened, but was actually being taken from him for his faith in Christ alone. Do you have the steadfast hope in Jesus' words and deeds that our brother John Huss had? 
Christian, kill the sin in your life that lies to you by stealing this resting place and trying to make you rest or hope in the things of this world. These things are meaningless and they will burn on the last day. Hope for the believer is only a God-centered hope. The Christian lives as one who has eternal hope. Hope not in your life or in its circumstances, but in the life, death, and resurrection of another. Hope in the one whose death actually declared death dead for you. It is finished. Third, Christian, leave your sin at the foot of the cross where Jesus paid in full for it and killed it eternally in his resurrection. When we live as though this were not true, we are living as, the, as if there is more to do to overcome our sin. Was Jesus' death on the cross necessary for us? Yes, we were dead in our sins. Was Jesus' death on the cross sufficient for us? Yes, his grace was sufficient. Was Jesus' death on the cross complete for us? Absolutely. It is finished. Jesus' resurrection from the grave three days later provides the proof evidence that his death, his shed blood, was an acceptable and complete sacrifice. Christian, it wasn't just a piece of parchment that was nailed to that tree declaring you free. Jesus was nailed to that tree for you. Now in your flesh, you may say, but I'm not good enough. No, rest in Christ. Jesus is righteous and has made you righteous in his death. It is finished. In your worry, you may protest, but I still struggle with my sin. No, persevere. Jesus paid for it all. There is no more debt owed. Christ is your mediator. It is finished. Under conviction, you may anguish and cry out, but I'm weighed down with all my guilt. No, Jesus already earned it. You did not, you cannot, and you don't need to. It is finished. Brother, sister, your sin died on that tree. Do not continue to carry its weight around with you. Jesus finished carrying all of that on the cross. It is dead, it is buried, and it is overcome. In a few minutes, we will sing together the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, one of my favorites. In verse 3, we will declare in public and to one another these words. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Christian, do you truly see the bliss in this glorious and truthful statement? You and I get to declare that to ourselves and to the whole world because of Jesus' work on the cross. Let's really declare this truth with the confidence, the joy, and the thankfulness that it deserves. It is finished. Finally, Christian, be unashamed of the finished work of Christ. Herald the gospel to others. Be like Paul and Barnabas at Antioch and be a light to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Be persistent and bold in evangelism and follow Peter's admonition to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you and do it with gentleness and respect. Brother and sister, do not worry about whether you know enough or can answer every question. You don't and you can't. 
Neither can I. Remember that you will never argue or reason someone into the kingdom of God. But that is not your assignment. Jesus already paved the way to the kingdom for the repentant believer. Rest in his finished work and do not worry about the effectiveness of your own. Also remember, brother and sister, that you are not alone in your assignment. Christian, remember that Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross was an act of love. One that enables you to ask and answer with Paul in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our answer as Paul's one, Paul's was, is nothing. How can trouble or sorrow or even bereavement drive us into overwhelming despair when we can declare with Paul this remarkable truth for ourselves? Our speech, our thoughts, our actions, our reactions, our relationships, our goals and our values are all transformed if only we live in the self-conscious enjoyment of this love of Christ. Our testimony is then no longer dry and merely correct. It is living and vital as well. We are vibrant in faith because of how His love has transformed us, growing us up spiritually. And we get to do this not as Lone Ranger believers, fending for ourselves in this world, but within His body of believers, the church. Listen to how Paul prays exactly for this, for the believer, which, by the way, if you're a believer, is you, in Ephesians 3. I, Paul, pray that you being rooted and established in love, the love completed and provided by Christ, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. A genuine and deepening grasp of the love of Jesus Christ is not to remain privatized for ourselves, but is to be declared boldly for what it is, Hope, truth, and love in a dark world. You are the herald, and the world hears the gospel by hearing. Step up and obey, and pray that God will give you a broken heart for the lost. Whether you know it or not, before you came to faith, you were prayed for when you were lost. None other than Jesus himself prayed for you in your salvation in John 17, right before they nailed him to the tree in your and my place. A good thing for your soul would be for you to find a quiet place this afternoon or in the near future and sit down and read the entire 17th chapter of John. It is Jesus praying to his Father that he would complete the work that his Son has started, that the Father would protect, sustain, and magnify the apostles and their message, and finally that he would unite and sustain all who believe in the apostles' message. Christian, this is you and I. Follow his example and pray for the lost. Plead for their souls. Herald the good news. Unashamed and unafraid, boldly and winsomely declare the reason for the hope that is within you. It is finished. Christian, do you live as one who knows, believes, acts, and proclaims that it is indeed finished? Brother and sister, I want to warn you. Do not make too little of what our Savior paid so much for to permanently secure salvation for you. Christian, live in the finished world of Christ's work. Believe it, know it, and act on it. In John 19.30, we have the triumphal pronouncement of the Savior of the world. 
When it seems he would be at his weakest human point, Jesus makes a dramatic and a pivotal declaration. The Apostle John wants us to know that Jesus, in full obedience to his Father, is accomplishing God's eternal plan of redemption as revealed in Scripture. John is eager to show us that Jesus' death, far from being an isolated event, is the climax toward which the whole of the Old Testament, all of God's revelation and activity, had been moving. This is the key event in God's eternal plan, his plan of calling together a people who would know him in eternal life. The New Testament portrays the Christ event, which happened 2,000 years ago, as the finished, perfect work of God for the salvation of his people. The gospel, the first coming of Christ, wins for all believers all the riches of glory. The acceptance of the believer with God is perfect the moment one believes, because Christ and his work are perfect. The status of the believer can never be improved upon. One possesses all the riches of Christ. There is nothing the believer will possess in glory that one does not now possess in Christ. And all this the believer possesses by faith. But that it is by faith does not make it any less real. For the repentant sinner who believes, no more blood, no more sacrifice is needed. There may be more martyrs for the faith this side of Judgment Day. John Huss was not the first martyr, or even the most recent martyr for our faith, and certainly won't be the last. But to procure the finished and eternal purposes of God, only Jesus' blood had to be shed, and no other shed blood would suffice. There are no more battles to be fought, no more words to be said, no more heroes to play their part. Jesus, the perfect suffering servant, took on himself sin, paid the full price, voluntarily gave up his own life of his own sovereign will, and rose victorious over the grave, death, and sin three days later. He would never speak again except as the risen Christ. For the believer, he finished the work, providing eternal hope in the inheritance and freedom of his shed blood. For the unbeliever, he finished the work, paving a way to salvation for those that repent and believe and place their trust in Jesus. It is finished. That is the hopeful and joyous reality. Believe and trust in Jesus' finished work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed at your saving and gracious work in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You who needed nothing sent your own son to be born so that he could die for the purpose of giving hope to the lost and more glory to yourself. You provided hope for repentant sinners while preserving your holy character and justice by shining immense light on the gloriousness of your grace. Father, mold us by your love and discipline that we may be more richly and deeply understand your marvelous works. May the true joy of your work on the cross and the resurrection dominate our hearts. And may your gospel be boldly proclaimed for your glory. In your risen son's name we pray. Amen. Please plot your hymnals for our final hymn, hymn 410, It Is Well With My Soul. So why is it well with our souls? Because Christ has finished the work, paid our debt, and given us the righteousness of Christ. It is indeed well for us both now 
and eternally. Our sin, not in part, but in whole, was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Let's declare in song the bliss that results from our certainty and our security in Christ's finished work. Please stand with me. Bye. 